We are in the middle of a three-week series in the book of Haggai. So uh, this week and next week, and we're in chapter two this week, as you just heard read. And the whole, the whole book is all about the idea of rebuilding relationship. As, as a remnant of the people returned to the city of Jerusalem and they begin the rebuilding process and they've been there for several years now. In fact, they've been there long enough that the prophet had a message for them as we looked at last week in chapter 1 that they had put all of their attention and resources into rebuilding their own homes. And the prophet of Haggai shows up and says, you've got some misplaced priorities. What about the temple? The temple lies in ruins. In fact, you've been here 16 years and the temple is still in shambles. And that's why you're experiencing the curses of the covenant. That's why you're in drought. That's why you're in famine. That's why your harvests are turning into nothing. And so the prophet has a strong message that they need to get to work. They need to go back and rebuild the temple. And we saw last week that they actually did. Uh, Very quickly, they uh, responded. And they got to work, and they started rebuilding the temple. And so last week, we had this emphasis on misplaced priorities, where the prophet had to show up and say, some of, some of your priorities are off, and we looked at what does that mean to live lives fully devoted in worship to our God, that everything we do is in worship to our Savior. And this week, we're going to think about the idea of misplaced expectations, What happens when we've got our focus and perspective in the wrong place in terms of what we're expecting in the future? When when you don't understand the past and you've got wrong expectations about the future, it's phenomenally difficult to understand the present. We as a people can't understand the here and the now and what God expects of us today in the present without proper perspectives on the past and of the future. How many of you enjoy thinking about the past? Any of you very nostalgic? Will you admit that you enjoy those things of yesteryear? You, especially this time of year and thinking about the holidays and just some of those traditions, I find that as our kids are getting older, Anna and I are quicker and quicker to start with the Christmas decorations and just enjoy some of the traditions of Christmas. I enjoy, I will admit, I am very nostalgic. I think at times that God allowed me to be born into a century, a a couple centuries too late. I wish I was a cowboy. Uh, Dean Gall, you're my hero. I, I, love, I love those things, right? I, uh, so it, on, on any average day in our house, chances are if you came in, you'd be able to watch an episode of the Andy Griffith Show with us. I don't know why we like watching that with our kids and thinking about Mayberry and the good old days. The way things, life was meant to be, right? And you think about that, and, and often we look to the past and we, we long for the things that we perceive were good. We forget about the failures. My wife all the time reminds me how difficult it would be to be a cowboy. And she reminds me, I wouldn't be there with you, she says. <laughs> she has no interest in that lifestyle. But for some reason, we look to the good and think that it outweighs all of that, and somehow the, the past isn't there. Or the future. Sometimes we, we, don't, we can't keep the future in the proper perspective. I love kids. There, there's a bluntness that goes along with kids. Yesterday, I'm reading a commentary, getting ready for this sermon, and one of my children wants to know what I'm reading. What are you reading? I said, I'm reading a book that's helping me get ready for the sermon tomorrow. Why are you doing that? How do you even know if you'll be here tomorrow? You might be dead. <laughs> I thought about it. I'm like, well, maybe I can quit studying. In fact, goes further, goes further. In fact, 
as I look at it, I think probably about the only way it could happen if you were dead by tomorrow, heart attack. Boom, you're done. That's just over. It's like, who, who, thinks, who thinks that way? The bluntness of kids, right? I did keep studying for the sermon. But sometimes if we don't have the future in its proper perspective and we don't have the past in its proper perspective, we fully don't understand the present, right? And, and I'm reminded of the words, there's a, there's a, uh, a sitcom that ran in the early 2000s and there was an actor who said, I, he, he said, I, I wish there was a, na- a way to know that you were in the good old days before they were gone. And the irony of this actor that said it, his character throughout the show spent the entire series reliving the past, thought that thought the college days were the glory days, and at the same time he was stuck always waiting for his big break in the future, thought his next big chance to be famous was right around the corner, and he was stuck between the past and the future, and, and therefore all of a sudden began to realize these are the good old days, and I'm missing them, and they're about to be gone. And, and Haggai shows up with his people, He shows up for the Israelites and he's got a message for them because some of them are starting to longingly look to the past. And as they do, they're getting very discouraged about the present. And because of that, their expectations and focus are off about the future. And he shows up to try to reset their expectations on the future. He says, listen, you need to think a certain way about the past because it's going to shape then how you think about the future and that will have a dramatic impact here in the present. And I think that we as a people need to understand these truths as well. We want to have our expectations fixed in the proper place so that we both understand the past and the present and it helps us with the future. So Haggai chapter 2 in these verses that Matt just read for us and let's begin to walk through them together. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. So Haggai is the Lord's messenger. Speak now to Zerubbabel. Remember who Zerubbabel is. He, he's, he's the Davidic heir to the throne. The, Israel at this point doesn't have a king, but if they did, Zerubbabel would be the guy. Uh, he would be uh, the, the, at this point, he's the governor And Haggai has this message for Zerubbabel and also to Joshua. He's the high priest, so he's the spiritual leader of the people. And Haggai has this message for Zerubbabel, for Joshua the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, the faithful ones that God has allowed to return back to Jerusalem. So they're here here in a sense, they're in captivity or under the rule of Persia, but they've been allowed to go back, so the captivity isn't, isn't the same that it once was in Babylon. And Persia rules... And they're here, they're trying to rebuild, and Haggai has this message on the seventh month, on the 21st day. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? He's talking about the temple. How many of you can remember the former glory of Solomon's temple? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So he has this question for them. Of of the remnant that returned, remember Jerusalem fell in 586, 587 BC, and you're now in the year 520. So this is like 66 years later. So there would be some that were in their 70s who are here, perhaps they're watching the rebuilding, perhaps they're participating, and they remember the glory of Solomon's temple. And if you read accounts of of the description of how Solomon's temple was built and just the beauty of it and the wealth that was poured into it and the things overlaid with gold and the amount of wealth and glory in a material sense, 
that was in the temple. And he says, do you remember that? There would have been a few that could remember that clear back then. And, and, and he asked this question, now how do you see it? Remember, as we went through chapter 1, the people themselves were in relative poverty. They were trying to rebuild. Their harvests had not been plentiful. And the obvious implication is they've been at this now for close to a month. So on the seventh day, excuse me, on the 21st day of the seventh month, they're almost a month into their rebuilding efforts, and there's probably discouragement setting in. Not just because of the uh, relative insignificance of the glory of the temple, but also think about the calendar. There's a couple other things that would come into play here. They're in the seventh month, so this month was particular heavy on some of the feasts that would have been implemented. As they tried to get back into this relationship with God, as they tried to reprioritize the temple and its life in their community, there would have been several feasts taking place during this period, and it probably would have compounded some of the discouragement. So on the first day of the month would have been the Feast of trumpets. On the 10th day of the month would have been the Day of Atonement. On the 15th day of the month would have started the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Remember when they would spend an entire week living in temporary shelters to remind them of the Exodus. It reminded them of them wandering through the wilderness and God's presence as he dealt with his people. And for an entire week they would do the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Remember, the tabernacle was the temporary temple. It, it was the mobile temple before the temple was built, a way for God to dwell with his people in the tabernacle, and, and God dwelt or tabernacled with his people. And, and for a week, they would remind themselves of this. Now, think about this. You're, you want to prioritize your relationship with God. Some of these feasts even gave the opportunity to give back to God in a tithing-type offering system. And yet here you are celebrating these feasts in a temple still of ruins. You're not able to give back to God what you want. You would like to be working to rebuild the temple, but on these holy days, you're, you're not able to participate in that way. Work has to cease, and you're not even able to celebrate and remember fully to the extent that you would like. And so probably discouragement is setting in, and especially as they look at the relative insignificance of the temple. And, and, and so he says, who among you can remember that glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes. Why are they doing all this work? Is it ever going to amount to anything? Because so far the results they've got to show for it are pretty insignificant. And here's his message. Look what he says in verse 4. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Here's what Haggai says. Keep going. Don't give up. Work. The central imperative in this verses that I read is work. 
Get busy. Keep going. Why? He tells them, be strong. Over and over, he commands Joshua to be strong, Zerubbabel to be strong, all of the people to be strong. And there's a reason he tells them they can do this, because God is with them. His presence is with them, just like the covenant he made with them. He's remembering that. He's calling them to remember that. And he wants them to realize God is with you. That's why you don't need to be afraid. That's why you need to be strong and work. And keep going. And don't let yourself get discouraged about the past. Why? Why are they supposed to be strong and keep working? Here's what God says in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts. Listen how many times you hear the Lord of hosts in these next few verses. The sovereign God, the Lord of all armies, the Lord of all rulers, the Lord of hosts. This is speaking of his sovereign power. This is speaking of the things that he can accomplish. This is the God that's with them. This is why they don't need to fear. He's the Lord of hosts. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while... I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. I will give shalom, declares the Lord of hosts. Here's what God's promise is. He's saying, keep working. Here's why. In a little while, I as the sovereign God, I am going to bring wealth to you. I'm going to shake the nations around you and wealth will come in. And what will happen to the glory of this temple will far exceed anything that you remember from Solomon's temple. Keep working. You're not trying to rebuild Solomon's temple. I am doing something among you, God says, that will far surpass what you remember. And God says, don't give up. God says, keep your perspective and your expectation right. Keep looking to the future and what God is going to accomplish because God is up to something far bigger. You're discouraged in the present because of what you remember in the past, but God says, look, don't get discouraged about the past. I'm doing something even greater is what God says. And there's very cool promises in this passage. The people of Haggai's day would have begun to experience the first part of this promise. You could read in Ezra chapters 1 through 6 some of the background of this. So especially in chapter 6, we're not going to go there now. But you would see a decree by Darius the king whereby he, he made a decree that those who were opposed to some of the rebuilding prophets, he actually taxed them and it was their money that then provided some of the furnishings of the temple. So after Haggai says all this, very shortly after that, the, the king of Persia sets up a tax on the nations around them and they have to fund some of these rebuilding efforts. How cool is that, right? And God says, you, you, don't under, you, you don't need to get discouraged. God is accomplishing something. God is up to something. In a little while, I'm going to shake the nations and even the wealth of the Gentiles will come in and he help rebuild this temple. Fast forward to the days of Herod, to the time of Christ. So Herod and the Roman Empire rebuilds this temple on a scale that was even larger than Solomon's, right? And then Jesus comes. And Jesus is the one who promised that if they destroyed this temple, his body, he would in three days raise it up. And Christ is himself the high priest 
who is now fashioning his church as a temple so that the glory of the Lord would be known. And we look forward to a future day. We look forward to a day where, where even the glory of the things that have happened here that Haggai has promised, that things were already experienced, there will be a far surpassing glory. And Haggai wants the people to not get discouraged by that. He doesn't want them to be discouraged by what they remember from the past because God, the sovereign God, is up to even something bigger. He's up to even something greater. And he doesn't want them to get discouraged. So how should we as a people think about this? That, that takes us through these nine verses, and I want us to think about some application for us just as we did last week, to think these are the truths of the, uh, that God had for the people of Haggai. So, so what does it mean for us? What should we take away from this, and what is the message that helps us as a people, as individuals, as Shawnee Baptist Church? What would Haggai say to us? What is God saying to us through this? Well, one of the first things that I would say is this. Make sure you understand the importance of the presence of God in your life. The, the priority of the presence of God in our lives. We as a people need to understand the importance of God's presence in our life. God dwelling with us as a people, God dwelling with us as individual Christians, and to realize what that means in our lives. So go back to verse 6. Go back to verse 5. Try once more. Go back to verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. Why? Why? For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when I came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Why could Haggai command the people to work? Because God was with them. This was not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just dig down deeper and if you look within yourself, you've got the power to do it. You just need to try a little harder. That's not what Haggai was saying. God was telling his people, I'm with you. I haven't abandoned you. I love you. I am with you according to the covenant that I made. Think back to the book of Exodus. Think back to uh, the, as the people were going on their way to the promised land. From Exodus chapter 25 until chapter 40, God is creating for himself this people. He's forming a nation. He's promising these blessings. He's telling them what he will do for them. And they're wandering through the wilderness. They're on their way to the promised land, and they get to Mount Sinai. Dark spot in the history of Israel. They get to the golden calf incident in Mount Sinai and the people begin to turn their backs uh, falsely worshiping a false god. And do you remember what happens? God is so upset with his people. If you go to chapters 32 and 33 of Exodus, and we won't read it there, but God, God has a punishment, a condemnation for his people, and he says, he says that they're a stiff-necked people, and he will not go with them into the promised land. He commands them to still go. Moses intercedes. By this point, the golden calf thing is over. God relents from wiping them off the face of the earth. Uh, but, but he says, you've got to go into the promised land on your own. God says, I'll fight your battles for you. I'll send an angel ahead of you, but you're a stiff-necked people 
people, and if I go with you, I will wipe you off the face of the earth. And you know what Moses does? You remember in chapter 33, Moses pleads with God, and he says, God, if you're not going to go with us, we don't want to go. Please go with us. We need your presence. It's not the land that's important. It's the presence of God that's important, and so God agrees. And God has compassion on his people, and he goes with them, and God's presence is with his people. And here Haggai shows up then in in, in chapter 2, and the people are afraid to work, and they're discouraged, and God says, I'm with you. My presence is here. Just like I promised you, I haven't abandoned you. And we as a people need to understand God's presence because just as it was true for the Israelites, for us as New Testament believers, God is with us. He has promised us his presence. He has promised to never leave us. And so the things that are on our plates to do as Christians and as churches, we realize we have the very presence of God with us. And if we don't tap into that, if we don't rely on that, if we don't, if we don't order all of our lives around that kind of an expectation, we're, we're failing. We're, we're, not, we're not experiencing it as we should. Matthew chapter 28, just before Jesus ascends into heaven and the well-known Great Commission passage where God gives his instructions to his people. And, and this is the way Matthew records the words of Jesus. Jesus came to his disciples and he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We we have focused on that Great Commission passage, and well, we should. But often we forget the last phrase, right? Why is it that we as a people and as the followers of Christ are to be busy proclaiming the good news of who Jesus is? Why? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And God promised his presence with his people and promised to send a comforter, a comforter that it would be far better for his people that Jesus himself left because the Holy Spirit would come and and allow great works to be accomplished. Brothers and sisters, we have the presence of God with us that we as a people need to understand that and realize this is who God is and what he's accomplishing in our lives and therefore we as a people need to be busy about the work that he's given to us. We as churches need to be busy representing him well. We want as many people as possible to know about who God is and the reality of his presence that he came to this earth, died on the cross for our sins, provided a way of salvation so that any who would turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Christ could experience that relationship with God, could truly experience the presence of God in a new way. And so we as a church and as people, we want to be passionate about spreading that message as far and as wide as we can. When we talked last week about having priorities as a people, such that the worship of God is lifted high, it ties into it this week that that we want others to know about who God is. We want to use our resources in such a way that our expectations are on the future because we want to experience the presence of God. We want others to experience the presence of God. And so we want to use our resources to that end. Let's keep going. The importance of the presence of God. 
But then finally, let's think about this in terms of the past and the present and the future. How should we as a people think about the past and the present and the future? It is easy in churches to think about the past whether this church or another church, it's easy to think about other past spiritual experiences and, and begin to get into a comparison mode and to think, well, that's, that's really when God showed up. I mean, oh, if we could only have that back. That's, that's how God was at work and active. And, and we can begin to misplace our expectations and say, we just got to repeat that. That's, that becomes our mission. Repeating the past becomes our mission. And let, let us not fall into that trap as a people that, yes, God has worked in the past. Yes, God is at work in the present. But we're looking forward to what God will do in the future. So one of the ways that this can often show up it happens, it happens a lot. It happens in comparison programs, uh, perhaps attendance, perhaps personalities that were there, and you, and you begin to p- compare past and future and all of those kinds of things. But let me give you a real tangible way that this shows up and a real dangerous way, okay? What I mean by dangerous is dangerous that I'm going to bring it up, okay? Uh, I'm going to step on toes just a little bit. Uh, but I think I can step on most everyone's toes equally, so I, I don't mind too much. Let's talk about music, right? And the way that we sing in a church, okay? And I'm not talking about preferences. Let me qualify here. Let me me give two qualifications. One, on the whole, on the whole as a church, you guys are to be commended for the way that you talk about our singing, for the way that you encourage our singing. On the whole, everything I've seen, there is, you, you are not causing problems on how we should and shouldn't be singing. So keep it up. Uh, this is an encourage. This is not meant in any way to um, say there are things going on that need to stop. It's a keep it up. Let's keep this in perspective for the future. Two, uh, another perspective or another qualification is I'm talking about. Um, I'm not talking about preferences. I'm, everybody has preferences. It'd be impossible to not have preferences. I'm talking about when it advances to the point of demands, right? Like, uh, if this doesn't happen, I'm not happy. And because you don't see eye to eye with me, I'm not even sure if you love Jesus. Okay, does that make sense? That, that's, that's when we begin to cross a line. Everybody has preferences and we'll never get past that. It can be easy though for one group to think, man, the, the, the songs of yesteryear, that's where Jesus was. That's when, when the church, you know, was alive and active and, and we need to go back to those days, right? Well, I would encourage you that, that the, the, the reason those songs were so powerful is because of the God they were sung about, not because of the style in which they were sung, right? Now, the reason I think that this can be an equal opportunity uh, stepping on toes is lest there be another group that thinks, yeah, it's the songs of the present. Let me speak to that group. Those of you that love the songs of today and the songs of the present, if you insist that the only way to love God and to worship God is to be singing the new, current, vibrant songs, you have repeated the same mistake. The only reason we love these songs is because of the God that they're proclaiming, right? Uh, and, and also, let me even be just a little bit harder on this group, to be, to be fair, okay? So I'm gonna step toes just a little more on this group. I hear it and see it and perceive it at times that we think, man, if we could just up our cool game, right? A little bit better songs, a little bit more instruments, pretty sure that the lost would look at us and they'll be flocking in our doors because of the songs we sing, right? I have news for you. We will never cool anyone into the kingdom. 
Um, there's not going to come a day where their eyes are opened and they say, wow, you're not as strange as I thought. No, there's, there's a message that we as a people are proclaiming. New songs do that just as good as old songs. They do. We don't worship any particular style of worship. We worship a God that we as people ought to come together and across all genres, across all styles. We ought to be able to say, that's not my preference, but I can worship God through it and sing my heart out to the truth of who God is, right? Because we don't idolize the past. You have this quote from a man named Mark Boda in your bulletin, and here's what he says. May this be true of us as we as a church think about the past, whether it's programs, whether it's music, whether it's personalities, things that God has done in the past. Why is God accomplishing these things, and why did God point to the glory of Solomon's temple in the book of Haggai? Here's what he says. God uses Haggai to call a generation to experience God in the present, not only in similar ways to the past, but in ways that would dwarf the past. We often see the past as setting up patterns that are insurmountable. Haggai sees the past as setting precedents that provide a springboard to even greater miracles. How true is that? That God is doing great things, and, and, and because of that, we want to be looking to the future. Now, how about the present? How do we think about the present and what God is doing in the life of Shawnee Baptist Church in your life at times when you look at things that are discouraging, especially as it relates to the church? I'm kind of relating this especially back to the church, and so there'd be other areas of personal application that you could make this morning. But as you think about the church and when you look around and you say, wait a minute, there are things that are discouraging. There's things that are out of place. We looked at this just a couple of weeks ago as we went through the word pictures of the church series. And we said the church is supposed to be the body of Christ. The church is supposed to be a temple or a building. The church is supposed to be the bride of Christ. The church is a, a battalion, a company of fighting soldiers. The, the church is like the, the, the sheep and the shepherd or the flock. The church... Uh, um, um, there's one more that I'm missing. As we went through all of these and we got to it and I said, I said, remember what God is doing, what, how Christ is working in our church and yet sometimes we look at these goals and we expectations and yet we see the reality of how we're living now and we say, but something doesn't measure up. We see, and, and Kevin so aptly described it when he wrapped the series up, Kevin did a message and just said that in the now, there's a brokenness. We're stuck in between this already and not yet, and we're waiting for God to accomplish. And here's the truth. The sad truth is we live in a community of sinners that don't quite get this right all the time. And if we keep our focus on the now, if we look too much to the past, there can be deep discouragement that sets in. And instead, we want to be saying, what is it that God can be accomplishing in our future so that we as a people would be faithful to allow God to work in our lives in these areas. One of you sent me a text with a quote from this book, The Songs of Jesus by Timothy and Kathy Keller. He goes, it's a daily reading through Psalms, and the way he does it, Psalm is at the top, the verses, there's a paragraph or two of devotional reflection, and then he closes with a prayer. And this was his prayer for yesterday, November the 24th. He says this, Lord, I praise you for what the church could future I praise you for what the church could be, an alternative human society that shows the world your glory. But I confess that I am what, what excuse me, but I confess I am a part of what the church 
is a flawed community, far from reflecting your character. Give me the understanding and the love I need to become part of the solution, not the problem. Amen. What a glorious truth, right? That we as a people right now, we, we, we are living in a sense where in a time with a broken community of fellow believers that we have bonded together, not because we're perfect or because we think we can attain it here in this life here and now, but because we know who is perfect and we are striving after him. And may God work in our hearts to give us that love and patience and understanding one another. That We don't want to get discouraged by things that we see that aren't messed up. Yes, we work on them. Yes, we address them. Yes, we keep striving forward. But may we not get discouraged with the present. Instead, may we look to the future. May, may we be a people who are so focused on what God is accomplishing through his church and that all may come to know him. May this be our passion. May this be what we seek to strive after, that we as a people are looking forward to what God will accomplish. At the risk of making you fall asleep, I want to read a very lengthy quote from a man named J.C. Ryle. He lived uh, 1816 to 1900 and was a pastor in England. Uh, and here's what he had to say about looking forward to Jesus coming again. Because that ultimately, that future glory, the, 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 the glory that's going to reveal the latter, we, we look forward to a day when Christ will come again. We look forward to his forever kingdom when there will be full glory face to face with God. And we don't want to get discouraged at the here and now. We want to keep our perspective set on that and the fact that Christ is coming again. Here, here is what he said. What will you get by looking forward to Jesus coming again? You will get that which is the best remedy against disquiet and depression. Hope shed abroad in your heart about things to come. When the minds of others are cast down with perplexity, you will feel able to lift up your head and rejoice. When all around seems dark and gloomy, you will see the light and be able to wait patiently for better days. Few things are so remarkable in the present time as the universal anxiety and suspense about the future. On all sides and among all classes, you hear of want of confidence and gloomy forebodings of coming evil. Church and state alike seem shaken to their foundations. No one seems to know what to expect next. Remember, this was over a hundred years ago. And here's what he says. On one thing alone, men seem agreed. They look forward with more fear than hope to the future. Governments seem afraid of their subjects, and subjects seem to have no confidence in their governments. The rich seem unable to satisfy the poor, and the poor seem unable to trust the rich. On all sides, you hear of restlessness, anarchy, lawlessness, disquiet, envy, jealousy, distrust, suspicion, and discontent. The cement seems to have fallen out of the walls of society. The bands which kept nations together seem to be decaying, snapping, and giving way. One might think that the devil was putting forth special efforts and allowed to have special power. The Christian's expectation is wholly fixed on Christ's second coming and reign. This is the great event to which he is continually looking forward. This is the blessed hope that sustains him and makes him calm amidst confusion. His eye is steadily fixed on his Savior's return. In the darkest hour, he does not despair. Hebrews 10.37, yet a little while, he says, and he who is coming will come and will not delay. From the bottom of my soul, 
I pity those who look for the perfecting of the church or the world by any existing agencies. I pity politicians who dream that any reforms will ever pacify and content mankind. I pity Christians who dream that missionary societies will gradually regenerate the nations and fill the earth with true religion till it silently and gently blooms into a state of perfection. Both parties are sowing for themselves bitter disappointment. They might as well expect grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. The only comfortable standing point in looking into the future is that which is occupied by the Christian who fixes his hope on the second advent of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are waiting for a glory that will far surpass anything we have experienced in this life. And when it comes, it will not disappoint. John records his vision of these truths in the book of Revelation. And in chapter 21, he says this in verse 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Coming down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Brothers and sisters, we wait for this day expectantly. Keep our expectations there, or we'll get discouraged about the past, and we won't know what to do with the present, but we need to look to the future. And if you're here this morning and your name is not written in the book of life, you won't experience that. It's what John said. What he means by that is only those who have come to the point in their lives where they realize their sin separates them from God. And they can't earn or work their way to, into a right relationship with God. The only thing they can do is trust on what Jesus Christ accomplished on this, on this earth. That he died on the cross to take payment for our sins. So that we, by faith and trust, would turn from our sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation. If you need that this morning, you can call out to God for salvation. Tell him you're a sinner. Tell him that you trust in Christ. We would love to speak with you about those truths this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and we know that you are indeed a true God. We want your presence among us. We, want to li- we, we know it is among us. We want to live in light of that truth. Help us to do that. Help us to order our lives around those realities. If there be any here who don't know Christ as Savior, may you work in their hearts such that they cannot rest until they have right relationship with God. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.